This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, June 26th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Kate Trinko. Today we feature Rachel's exclusive interview with Republican representatives Dan Crenshaw and Mike Johnson. They talk about the border crisis, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and much more. By the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news. The Customs and Border Protection will soon be seeing new leadership as John Sanders, its acting commissioner, plans to resign in July. Sanders' resignation came after it was announced that over 100 kids were moved back to a troubled Border Patrol station in Clint, Texas, a location where a group of lawyers who visited recently said hundreds of minor detainees had been housed for weeks without access to showers, clean clothing, or sufficient food, as the New York Times reported. Sanders had been the acting commissioner since President Trump chose former Customs and Border Patrol Commissioner Kevin McAleenan to be the acting Homeland Security Secretary. President Trump isn't seeking a cool-down when it comes to relations between Iran and the U.S. He tweeted Tuesday, Iran leadership doesn't understand the words nice or compassion. They never have. Sadly, the thing they do understand is strength and power, and the USA is by far the most powerful military force in the world. And any attack by Iran on anything American will be met with great and overwhelming force. In some areas, overwhelming will mean obliteration. No more John Kerry and Obama. In an interview with The Hill, Trump reiterated he doesn't need Congress's approval for any military action regarding Iran. I like the idea of keeping Congress abreast, but I wouldn't have to do that. Sure. Nancy Pelosi actually said you must have congressional approval. So you disagree with her on that? I disagree. I think mm-hmm. most people seem to disagree, but I do like keeping them. They have ideas that intelligent people, they'll come up with some thoughts. I actually learned a couple of things uh, the other day when we had our meeting with Congress, which were, I think, helpful to me. But uh, I do like keeping them abreast, but I don't have to do it legally. President Trump has tapped First Lady Melania Trump's spokeswoman, Stephanie Grisham, as the next White House press secretary to replace Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Melania Trump made the announcement about Grisham, who has been her communications director for the past two years, on Twitter saying, quote, POTUS and I can think of no better person to serve the administration and our country. Excited to have Stephanie working for both sides of the White House. President Trump isn't a fan of reparations. In a new interview with The Hill, Trump was asked about whether he backed reparations for those who are descendants of slaves. The president responded, it's been a very interesting debate and I don't see it happening. No. Good news for the United Kingdom. An appeals court has overturned a previous ruling that required a mentally disabled woman who is 22 weeks pregnant to have an abortion that she didn't want. Her mother, according to reports, is willing to raise the child. I am acutely conscious of the fact that for the state to order a woman to have a termination where it appears that she doesn't want it is an immense intrusion, said Justice Natalie Levin of England's Court of Protection in her ruling last week, according to Catholic News Agency. The mother of the pregnant woman, who was renamed unnamed, challenged the judge's ruling and three Court of Appeals judges overturned it, according to the New York Times, which cited the mother's lawyer, John McKendrick, as the source. Illinois became Tuesday the 11th state making it legal to use marijuana recreationally. Governor J.B. Pritzker, a Democrat, also said it would affect criminal records, saying, quote, 
This legislation will clear the cannabis-related records of nonviolent offenders through an efficient combination of automatic expungement of gubernatorial pardon and individual court action. Today, we're giving hundreds of thousands of people the chance at a better life. Next up, we'll have Rachel's interview with Representatives Dan Crenshaw and Mike Johnson. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Republican Study Committee's Elephants of Room. I have the great pleasure of moderating a discussion today with Congressman Mike Johnson from Louisiana and Congressman Dan Crenshaw from Texas. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, we'd love for you all to follow along. So if you'd like to submit questions, feel free to submit questions on Twitter with the hashtag AskTheElephants. You can also watch live on Facebook at the Republican Study Committee Facebook page. So let's just dive right in. The House and Senate will be voting later this week on competing funding packages to give humanitarian aid at the border. Democrats have been opposing this. Why is this so um, controversial to them? It's a very good question. It shouldn't be controversial. We have gone from a humanitarian and national security crisis to what I like to refer to now as an outright catastrophe. That's what we have. I mean, if you look at the, the data, it's irrefutable. Uh, everybody sees the, the, the heart-wrenching situations with families and, and uh, unaccompanied minors who come across the border. The apprehensions at the border through customs and, and border control uh, is almost twice what it was last year. The first six months of this year, we've apprehended twice as, or as many as we did in all of last year combined. So we have to address it. Congress needs to take this action. And unfortunately, there's some in this town who want to use it as a political football. And uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's very unfortunate. Yeah. They want to keep this issue alive. They're going to continue to want to keep it alive. And they keep it alive by being against any kind of enforcement or security measures. So unfortunately, the reality is we don't have the same goals anymore. You can compromise on something when you have the same end goal, but you have very different ways to get there. You know, and uh, there's plenty of issues you can point to like that. But immigration is unfortunately not one of them because they want less enforcement. And unfortunately, I think we're, we're seeing that the potential of poison pills being put into these into these spending bills that, that do just that. OK, we'll we'll give more humanitarian aid at the border, but you have to give us something. And we're going to say, why would we need to give you anything? That's insane. Why don't we all just agree at least on that, at least on improving the conditions at the holding facilities? But they don't actually want people there in the first place because they don't want enforcement. That's exactly right. So we've reached an impasse. And, uh, you know, the president's tried to exert his uh, word and his will in this thing, but but every time he requests additional funding, there's a further backlash from the Democrat side. So we find ourselves right. in this in this very unfortunate and really immoral situation, and we've got to address it. And Congressman Johnson, you just introduced legislation that would address fraud and abuse in our asylum laws. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
that's one of the, the root problems of our immigration uh, crisis that we have, is the abuse of our asylum program. Look, we're, we're a very benevolent country. We're the most benevolent country in the world, and we serve as a place of refuge for people who are legitimately being persecuted in their hometown. They're in, they're in, they have a credible fear of their own life or their family's life. For example, if they're uh, on the run from a drug cartel in their Central American nation or what have you. But what's happened is over the last several years is the, the standard for that to, to qualify for asylum in our country um, has been watered down. And so we have a bill that will fix that. It will uh, increase the standard of credible, credible fear to make sure that those who claim it are actually the persons who should be availing themselves of that protection. And it's not just being abused by people who just want to come here for a better opportunity. That is illegal immigration. That's an abuse of our asylum program. And it really hurts the most the people that actually need it. Congressman Crenshaw, you come from a border state. What specifically in your state, in this immigration crisis we're seeing, how have you seen people in your state impacted? Yeah, you mean for people from Louisiana? <laughs> well, I'm from Texas, in a border state. He had to go there. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, it's, it's a massive impact. Uh, it's funny, we're having a hearing this week in the Budget Committee, and the name of the hearing is the benefits of immigration. Not the cost of immigration, but the benefits. And we're talking past each other because Democrats tend to conflate illegal immigration with legal immigration. There are benefits to legal immigration. We like legal immigration. There's actually quite a few economic benefits to that. Um, and they're, they're generally good people. They're very likely to start a new business. That's all great. But they lump all that into the same category. And they're not the same category. There's actual costs when you have massive inflows of illegal immigrants, the vast majority of which do not come with skills, uh, the vast majority of which are, 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 more, are, are costing more to our economy and our society than, than, than the taxes they might pay, which are usually in the form of just sales tax. That's about it. Um, so let me give you one example. In my district, there's a hospital that is designated for low-income Americans, okay? It's, it uses special funding. It is, it is for people without insurance. 25% of the money they use goes to illegal immigrants. And this is one of those places where they can actually uh, measure this because it's low-income hospital, meaning you have to prove that you're low-income, therefore we're looking at your documentation when you show up. That's a lot of money. That should be going to our low-income citizens, and it's not. So, I mean, the, the, the costs are great. Uh, our Border Patrol agents are overwhelmed. It's, it's amazing they even get up in the morning and go to work yeah. because they're not there to secure the border anymore. They're there to process massive amounts of people who are abusing the asylum system. And that, that, is, that is the, I'll double down on that, that is the most important aspect of fixing this is, is fixing the asylum loopholes. That is the draw that brings people in. And uh, you, you fix some very simple things on that. You, if you create a system where once you arrive, you are held and your and your case is adjudicated, uh, even by the laws we have now for 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 the standards of asylum. If we if we just did that instead of catch and release, I think we would have a massive reversal of this problem, and it would happen very quickly because the word would get out. There's no doubt about that, and and it's true that when those cases are adjudicated in the current system, it takes two years sometimes to get a hearing. So when the people are released out into the in the country, wherever they go, many of them yeah. never return for that there's, hearing. There's no incentive to there's come no back. There's no incentive to come back. The DHS so, secretary said 90% are not showing up. From, right. from those three countries, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, 90% aren't showing up. So the word's gotten out amongst other people in those nations, go to America, as long as you get over the border, you're home mm -hmm. free, because they won't mm -hmm. deport mm -hmm. you, they won't find you. And, mm -hmm. and so that has had a very perverse incentive for people to come here. Right. And, and I saw, a, I think, um, one of the polling organizations, maybe it was Gallup, they did a poll or some estimate and they figured out there are tens of millions of people in Central America alone who want to make that journey right. and come here because right. why wouldn't you, right? 
and and look, we're the most benevolent people in the world, but we we cannot take care of everyone. We've got to have some limits, and we have to have the rule of law, or else we'll lose our own sovereignty and what right. makes us the great nation that we are. That's right. Texas's governor, Greg Abbott, he just announced that Texas is going to be dedicating about a billion dollars to help secure the border. Why is Texas having to do Congress's job essentially right now? Uh, because we're one of the last states that has governed well and, and it, using common sense and, and basic rule of law, I suppose. And, um, you know, we also spend our money uh, very carefully, which means we sometimes we often have uh, extra for emergencies like this. But no, it is it is not correct. There's there's not that many things I like the federal government doing, but international border security is definitely one of them. That's it's that's a very clear uh, federal government role and responsibility, and it, it is it is sad that Texas taxpayers have to pay for that, um, and uh, it, you know it frustrates us. But but it is something we have to do, um, and for all the reasons we've just stated. Well, immigration is a hot topic. We're going to come back to it in a little bit before we end the show. But another hot topic right now on the hearts and minds of our viewers, I know your constituents of socialism, we've seen a rise in interest among it, among lawmakers in Congress and elsewhere. And Human Progress, which is a project of the Cato Institute, they released, recently released this survey that found that 42% of millennials would rather live in a socialist country. Why are statistics like these so concerning, and how can we respond? Yeah, it's a lack of information. I mean, yeah. the, the people that are responding to those polls don't understand. What, what they're responding to is a question that, that's presented to something like, would you like the government to provide you with free health care and a place to live and a car and a phone? I mean, you know, most people say, sure, that sounds great. They don't talk to them about the ultimate extreme cost that is associated with that, not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of the sacrifice of your individual liberties and your freedoms. If you turn everything over to state ownership, that's ultimately what happens. And it is uh, the antithesis of everything that we are in America and everything we have been. The reason we are the exceptional greatest nation in the world is because our system and our principles are the opposite of everything that those people are promising right now. Uh, we just have to say that and articulate it in a way that millennials and, and all Americans uh, understand it, that it resonates with yeah. them, that they understand what it is that, that is being suggested here and the, the terrible price that would have to be paid for those kinds of regimes. Yeah, and they're, it's really hard to nail them down when you're trying to discuss socialism with somebody because they'll, they'll jump from, from definition to definition. I think, I think the well-meaning millennials who, who like socialism are probably referring to Nordic countries. And so it's just up to us to say that's not socialism. And by, by, by many markers, they have a more free market economy. They have a flatter tax system than we do, like a far flatter tax system than we do. They just have very, very big government welfare programs. How do they pay for those programs? They tax the middle class. They tax the middle class exponentially higher than we do. And so, and so that's, that's a better, that would be a more honest question to ask them. Not do you like socialism, but do you want to raise your own taxes by 10 or 20 basis points but you also get these things for it. Do you want that? And most will say, well, that's actually quite a big cost. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Um, and, and it changes the, the form of the discussion rather greatly. But it, it, is, it is education. So there's other polls, too, that, that the same people who say they prefer socialism also answer that they want less government intervention in their lives. Right. Right. So that's, that, that, that gives us a good, a good connection with them, actually. As long as we can redefine socialism to them, um, and, and, and kind of embrace them with open arms in, in a teaching moment as opposed to saying how stupid they are for liking socialism, uh, we, I think we can bridge that gap because I, I think the younger generation is highly libertarian at heart. Sure. If you really start to delve down in, into 
uh, into issues with them, they tend to be more libertarian. And I think we've got to take advantage of that as Republicans. And, and we have great success when you're when you're with a crowd like that who ha who's that's sort of their philosophy, and you say, you explain why those two pursuits are mutually exclusive. You cannot be for individual freedom and liberty mm -hmm. and be for socialism. You can't have both. And so right. once you break that down, it's easy to, to make them kind of see the light on it. And we have to explain to them why that is. Right. Okay, so, you know, if, you, if we want to give you something, we have to infringe on the rights of others to give you that. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with taking. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we have to explain to them, too, like socialism totally misreads human nature. Yeah. Right. And, and an individual freedom and basically it's say capitalism does not a free market does not because what, what, what socialism forgets is that you need a series of incentives for, to make the economy work properly. Right. You need you need those incentives. You need the, the forces of the market to tell you how much something costs, how much is needed, how much isn't needed. It, it relies on, on two things that can't be true. The fact that you don't need human incentive and the fact that you that you can actually plan an economy from a centralized location, that you can plan very complex institutions from a centralized place, which is just fundamentally not true. And also that human nature is essentially good. And I mean, remember, all this is rooted in Marxism and and, and the, the original philosophers who proposed all this, they thought of socialism as a means to the end of the of the communist utopia. This was just mm -hmm. one step in the uh, in the whole progression. Obviously, we know that that's an impossible thing. And it, it just takes a while to, to, to break this down and a town hall format is helpful for that, but we need other ways to be able to explain these things so that yeah. people understand what it is we're actually having a discussion and a debate about. Exactly, yeah. and going off of that, as a millennial, Congressman Crenshaw, with a connection to millennials, what are some ways that you've seen, um, just viable ways to go in and reach young people who are sort of attracted by the shiny object of socialism, but oh, you know, a way to reach them where we can draw them in and not let them be led astray? Yeah, well, it's the question we're always gonna be asking, It's it's, platforms on social media it's going to the college campuses um, and you know I work with I work with Turning Point USA a lot on that because they can create the, that infrastructure that I need to get into the college campus and then have a lot of people there and, and answer the hard questions um, and reach out to the groups that call themselves socialist groups have them come answer questions ask questions and, and like, let's just hammer it out um, and, and get that message across and I think it's just important not to demonize them right away uh, because Oftentimes, they don't mean actual socialism, all right? And uh, that, that, that's important to note as, as, we, as we engage in that debate. And these opportunities are so important because if you look at the data, you realize the reason that, for example, the Republican Party is attracting less and less uh, more highly educated uh, voters is because they spend so much time in the academy and the universities are run at the faculty level, the administration level, usually by liberals almost mm -hmm. almost entirely and sometimes by radical liberals, right? Uh, socialists and others. Yeah. And so uh, these students are being indoctrinated instead of educated. So these voices and these opportunities are so critically important just so that they're exposed to the other side. Mm -hmm. And if we abandon those forums, then we, we effectively yield that whole marketplace of ideas to one side and that that does not serve the interests of the country in short term or long term so mm -hmm. the, these these are initiatives that we have to dig in and do much more of congressman johnson on the last episode of elephants in the room we talked a lot about the green new deal mm -hmm. why that's such concerning policy Can, for listeners who aren't as familiar with it socialism we were talking about that how is this bill and this legislation being pushed by so many democrats in congress why is it so dangerous to our way of american life 
Well, because it would be the full implementation of this radical leftist dream for the country, and it's completely impossible to implement. Not only do we've all heard the punchlines about how they were proposing that we get rid of planes and trains and automobiles and cows, for that matter, but um, it, it, we, we had a, a lunch discussion today, and one of my colleagues said in the Republican conference, we did the math, it would actually take nearly the GDP of the entire planet to implement uh, the Green New Deal in America. I mean, you know, it's staggering numbers and it's completely unworkable. And we talked about on the episode, just one example, they, they want to uh, get rid of fossil-based fuels and, and oil and gas entirely in a 10-year window uh, to be replaced by wind and solar, which is highly unreliable, which would drive the cost of every household up on average $600, uh, 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 I think it was a month, to do it, to have the amount of wind that you would need to replace our fossil fuel reliance, um, you would need a landmass the size of the state of California. And ironically, one of the highest contributors to carbon emissions is concrete, the production of concrete. To produce the amount of concrete it would take to put all those windmills in would dramatically increase the exact problem that they say they're trying to correct. So it just goes on and on no, and on. We didn't they're going to use the sun to build oh, the wind. That's right. Yeah, yes, they're yes. going to figure that out. Oh, and all the migratory <laughs> birds that they're going to kill with the windmills, yeah. too. I mean, the whole thing, it, it would be a joke, and we would laugh about it, and we have, except that they have over 90 co-sponsors on that legislation, uh, that, that resolution in the House. It's a very serious thing, and I think even some of, the, some of our colleagues well-intended as they may be, they don't even understand what it is they're, they're advocating with this thing. So our job is to educate people and to put the details out there. Our podcast was a great uh, way to do that. Uh, we're tr looking for more and more avenues to do it. And we have a counter-resolution that we're introducing in the House uh, to, to just draw more attention to this because we want Americans to understand what it is they're advocating for. It's, it's impossible, and it would be a great hardship for every American, every single person in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of shiny objects of socialism and legislation, another thing we're seeing being pushed by Democrats is Medicare for All. Bernie Sanders and others are wanting to push that through. And the Washington Post, interestingly enough, they had a piece published over the weekend with the headline, quote, voters have big health care worries, but not ones Democrats are talking about. And there was actually a Democrat being quoted in this piece, a voter who said, I'm really not interested in Medicare for All. That's not the answer. Why is that not the answer? Well, there's a lot of reasons it's not the answer. Look, Americans are concerned because our health care costs are skyrocketing. Uh, our, our choices are dwindling. You have more professionals leaving that profession, healthcare providers, because of all the complexity of the regulatory environment and everything else. Uh, that is a ballooning crisis still. Uh, the, the American people want us to go in members of Congress and fix this problem. They want to make sure that pre-existing conditions are covered. They want to make sure that they can have choices, that they can have health savings accounts, they can have uh, mobility and so that everybody gets coverage they can actually afford that is reliable. Medicare for all goes in the opposite direction on all those things because you put the government in charge of everything. They want to get rid of your private insurance, the, the ability to have an employer-provided plan. Americans love those plans. They, they favor those over government-run health care. And there, there's so many problems with it that I think that some of these presidential candidates on the Democrat side who say they're for that, I'm not even sure they actually, some of them believe it themselves. They just feel like it's a talking point for the election cycle. It, it wouldn't, it'd be almost impossible to implement. They, they like these aspirational ideas, whether it's a Green New Deal or, or Medicare for All. And I think... I think they couldn't pass a polygraph to, to it, when it comes to, to stating that it's actually workable, but they don't care. And, and this is this is the problem with even even moderate Democrats. Their their rhetoric gives way to the far left, and so I, I don't think it's even right for us uh, for us to to give them that space and distinguish between the moderate left and the far left 
they've become the same thing because they're saying the same things, even though, it, and, and I think the moderate Democrats just rationalize it and they tell themselves, it's just aspirational, it'll just get us moving in that direction. Well, it's irresponsible. It's irresponsible talk. And your thing about, you know, Medicare for all, you're, you, you have to cut prices to doctors and hospitals, meaning you have to cut supply, meaning you, you have to cut quality of care. And there's this notion that it all becomes simpler and easier, which is a really nonsensical notion. Just because you remove the, the, in, the private insurer from the equation doesn't mean there's now not a government bureaucrat there to then triage the case and decide uh, what form of, of care is proper to use for that patient. Um, and, if, and if you increase the prices, well, then you've increased the price tag of Medicare for all drastically. And you have to be honest with the American people about what that will cost them. And again, this always goes back to if you want more government services, you also have to tell people what they're going to cost. And Democrats like to gleefully you know, leave that part out. And this one has a price tag of $32 trillion. That's, that's the lowest end. That's the low end. Change. Yeah, <laughs> pocket change. So what it means to the average American, we have to be able to say, look, this means much higher taxes for less quality of care, less access to care, long waiting lines and all the problems they have mm -hmm. in these other countries uh, by way of comparison. We have the best system. We just have to enhance it and make sure it works better and that we keep the cost under control. Mm -hmm. well, thank you both for your insights on those issues. Congressman Crenshaw, your first bill just recently passed the House, um, and this bill delays inefficiencies in the Department of Homeland Security. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and what it was like to have your first bill pass? Sure. Uh, it feels great. You know, it's good to, it's good to get some bipartisan support for, for a little, for even, even small wins. Um, you know, th what, what this bill does is it's, a, um, it's, an, it's an, an acquisition review board bill. It puts that into law at DHS so that they have to, they have to be uh, much, they have to make much better use of taxpayer money as they put, as they put out these contracts and, and big acquisitions for DHS. So it's a, it's a small win, but it's a win nonetheless for, for taxpayers and, and, and what we do with taxpayer money. And Congressman Johnson, you're working in bipartisan too in the Honor and Civility Caucus. Can you tell us a little bit about what that caucus is about and how you're trying to forward um, conservative policy issues even with unlikely allies? Yeah, you know, Dan's been a great example of this with the whole Saturday Night Live thing that brought him to national prominence. We love how he handled that. And I, I, I called him shortly thereafter and said, that's exactly what we've been trying to accomplish. So the Honor and Civility Caucus came about because my class, which is the one before Dan's, we came in. Uh, January 2017, we had 55 members in our class, and at our first freshman re retreat, we sat around at the end of that three-day event, and, and Democrat and Republican, everybody gave their parting comments, and I was struck me that everybody said, gosh, I hate the tone of our politics, and I wish we could do it differently. So I was just inspired enough to go back to the office and draft this one-page document called The Commitment to Stability, and it's just a simple statement of principles that says, uh, our opposition on the floor is not our enemy, right? Our enemy are rogue nations and terrorists trying to take us down. That's our fellow American. We ought to treat one another with some basic level of dignity and respect. We can disagree in an agreeable manner. We need to be able to work things out, work towards consensus on these important issues that face the country. Um, and, and to my delight, uh, I think all but two members of our 55-member class signed on, Republican and Democrat. We then brought it Congress-wide after Steve Scalise's tragic shooting um, that, that next June. And uh, to date, we have over 150 members of Congress signed on to this commitment to civility. Uh, and I mean, it's leaders and luminaries from Kevin McCarthy, the top Republican, all the way over to like John Lewis, legendary civil rights leader on the Democrat side. So some influencers and people that, that have that influence and, and that we can stick by our convictions and never compromise our core principles, but still treat one another with dignity and respect. By the way, we're supposed to be setting an example for the next generation and our own children, right? Um, so we started the, uh, Charlie Crist and I started in a bipartisan fashion, the Honor and Civility Caucus in December of 2017. 
and we've been building towards that idea of just having people. Uh, we can have impassioned arguments and debates on the on the policy on the issues, but that at the end of the day we can you know slap each other on the back and say, hey man, no hard feelings. That's the way it used to work in this Congress, and and we need to get back to that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that perspective. Congressman Crenshaw and Congressman Johnson, we have been talking about socialism, Green New Deal, immigration. What other uh, policies that we have not hit on that you guys are working towards that you would like to highlight? Um, well, some of the things we're working on uh, actually have to do with healthcare and environmental uh, environmental response to the Green New Deal. I mean, especially if, if you're my age, if you're under 40, if you're millennial, you really care about the environment. We do have to have a response to that. And I think the Republican the response is going to look a lot like this. It's going to be it's going to be implementing carbon capture technology. It's going to be talking about how to export more natural gas to dirty coal burning countries. It's going to be talking about new new forms of nuclear, miniaturized nuclear, um, making that easier to permit. Um, these things would actually reduce emissions. And our, and our talking point is this. You can implement the Green New Deal at great costs, and you can tackle 15% of the global emissions problem. 15%, because that's what America actually produces. Or you can look at 100% of the problem. When we look at 100% of the problem, then you've got to look at the technology that, export, that is exportable and creates reliable, clean energy. Um, natural gas would do that. So that, that's one thing. Um, on the healthcare side, I'm looking at direct primary care. This is a very cool system that uh, you know, only about 3% of, of primary, uh, primary care physicians use right now. It's free market-based. Uh, it, it, it is a direct relationship between the doctor and the patient. They basically have a subscription service. Uh, you pay you know, 85 bucks a month, and that's your doctor. We can, we can look at ways to actually universalize that. That, that should be our answer to healthcare, um, and uh, I think that'll be especially uh, promising because the cost will be vastly lower. It'll have trickle-down effects that improve the entire healthcare market gives you that preventive care and gives people back that relationship between the patient and the doctor. I think this is a very cool thing that we're working on. Those are big issues and you know in the Republican Study Committee we have task forces working in a number of different areas among those issues including uh, the American Worker Task Force which is looking at all aspects of workforce development and how we provide for that need going forward the next 10 or 20 or 50 years in this country. We have to plan those things now to work on it then. We've got ideas on infrastructure and all these big issues that, that um, the American people, uh, it's top of mind for them. And it's important for us, as Dan's articulating here, uh, to say conservatives, Republicans are for these things. I mean, you know, environmental policy. One of our core principles is stewardship, is being a good steward of, uh, of the earth that God's given us to take care of, right? Um, we have ideas on that, and we need to not be boxed into a corner. We need to be thinking, uh, you know, ahead and going out and, and projecting these ideas, presenting them, putting them on the table for debate and discussion. And uh, we're grateful that we have smart members working on all this, and we're doing it individually and collectively. And in the, the weeks and months ahead, you'll be hearing a lot more about all that. So looking back on immigration before we wrap up, you've been to the border, you've seen the situation there, live in Texas from a border state. What are the top three things you would say Border Patrol agents would need to help them do their job better given the influx of all the numbers we're seeing? Um, well, they need, they need barriers where that makes sense. I mean, if you're not going to put a 2,000-mile wall, that was actually never the plan, but Democrats love to repeat that as the plan. And uh, they, because that, what that allows Border Patrol to do is say, okay, we've got the barrier over there. We can focus our efforts right here. Um, you know, they they need more agents because they're they're being they're being uh, they're being asked to do more overtime. They're I mean they're being exhausted. Um, they need obviously more resources at the processing centers, uh, which which are run by them. And uh, they need they need more 
I think, civilian personnel to, to outfit those processing centers. Right now, Border Patrol agents are there, you know, doing laundry, uh, getting food, things like that. That's not a Border Patrol agent job. A Border Patrol agent should be looking around with their binoculars around the border, looking for people trying to get away, not there processing people who are not trying to get away. What they really need, and the third thing, this was the most important thing by far, we've already hit it, which is asylum reform. They want to feel like when they process people, they're not just going to be released. I mean, if you're a Border Patrol agent, I honestly don't know how, how you get up and do this every day. Yeah. Because they know that the, all the work they're doing doesn't matter at all. These people are just getting released and probably not coming back to their court hearing, which is vastly unfair. In addition to all those things, what they need more than all of that is the support of the U.S. Congress. And, and we've got to get beyond the partisan bickering, using this as a political football issue going into the election cycle. These are real people's lives. This is a serious catastrophe that we're facing now. It's beyond a humanitarian crisis. It is a catastrophe. And we have to address it. And it takes political will to do that. Uh, that's what they need more than anything. Well, Congressman Crenshaw, Congressman Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.